I want you to answer a question for me in your mind, just, just to yourself. I want you to think for a second how you would answer this question. How would you describe your prayer life in one word? So you get one adjective, and I want you to describe what your prayer life is like, how you, how you pray, how strong your prayer life is. So what is that one word? You see it in your mind. What's that one word? I've heard a lot of words over the years. When people have talked to me about their prayer life, I hear words like, well, it is weak. It is rushed. It is sad. It is inconsistent. You know the word that I've never heard anyone ever say? It's great. I'd really, I'd love it for somebody to come to my office and say, Blake, my prayer life is awesome. It's firing on all cylinders. It doesn't need any improvement. But no one ever does because when the subject of prayer comes up, all of us feel at least a little bit ashamed, don't we? That's the normal response that I see in people and that I feel in my own heart. When the subject of prayer comes up, we feel at least a little bit guilty because we know that prayer is an incredibly significant thing and yet all of us have this sense that we could be doing so much better at it. Now in our sermon last week, our application was prayer. So let's see how well you remember the sermon from last week. This is always not fun for me as a preacher to talk to somebody about the sermon last week. So I'll just, I'll review it for you. There were two big ideas of the sermon last week. Two expectations that we need to have in life. Two realities that we need to, to do justice to. The first is that life in this world will be evil. There's no way around that reality. It will be evil until Jesus returns. And as a result, expectation number two, Christians will suffer. We will be persecuted if we try to follow Jesus. So those were the two big ideas last week. And our application from those two realities was prayer. Okay, if this world is evil and if Christians will be persecuted, then what we need to do is we need to be praying for the salvation of the lost, that they would come to know Jesus. And we need to be praying for the persecuted church, for our brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith around the world. So we talked about prayer, but we did not talk about how to pray. And so today we're going to hit pause on the book of 2 Timothy. And we're going to, to talk together about something incredibly important and incredibly practical. We're going to talk about the habit of prayer. One of, if not the most important habits in your life. Prayer is, is a lifeline for Christians. It's how we find power and perseverance to make it through life. So this morning we're going to get very particular and very practical about how you develop this habit of prayer. But the really good news about the habit of prayer is it's a habit you can learn. I don't know if you realize this. this is an important thing, just to, like a, a switch to flip in your mind. Prayer is never listed as a spiritual gift. Jeff, prayer is not a spiritual gift that some Christians have and others don't. Prayer isn't a personality type that some people find easy and others do not. Prayer is a skill that anyone can learn to do well. It is possible for every Christian to become great at prayer. So this morning we're going to talk about how. I'm going to give you six steps 
for developing a great prayer life. And all six of them come from Jesus, the master of prayer. He's the best there is. Jesus spoke a lot about prayer and he prayed a lot in his earthly life. And so we're going to look both at his teachings and at his practice. And we're going to pull out of it six very practical principles for becoming great at prayer. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning. So let's jump right in. The first step for becoming great at prayer, if you want to pray like Jesus, your prayer should be informal. You want to keep your prayers personal. If you look at how Jesus prayed, Mark Mark 14, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is the, the end of his life as he's about to be arrested. Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And what I want you to focus on in that verse is the very beginning. Abba, Father. Father in Greek is the word pater. It's, it's kind of the, the little bit more formal way of referring to your dad. In English, the word father is a perfect equivalent. Abba is a very informal word. It is how you refer to your dad when you want to call him dad or daddy. It's, it's a very relational term, a very personal term, even an intimate term. And so what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus' prayers weren't formal. They were informal. They were personal. He was speaking to God like his heavenly father. When you look through the prayers of Jesus, you'll find that there are no like repeated stanzas, no things that he memorized and just repeated over and over again. There's no complex words. There's no really complicated theology. Jesus's prayers were just simple. Jesus' prayers were just him talking to his dad like you would talk to your dad. That's, that's what prayer is. It's simply speaking to God as your heavenly father, as your dad. And so if you're speaking to your heavenly father as your dad, you don't need to try to impress him with big words. You don't need to use Christian jargon. You don't get any points for going deep into theology with God. That's not interesting to God for you to do that. You just need to speak to God as your father. You don't have to have seminary training or a high IQ to pray well. Great prayer just means talking to God as your dad. So when you think about talking to God as your dad, I want you to picture that you're talking to your heavenly father just like a child would speak to his or her dad. I want you to imagine for a moment, what if my six-year-old son, what if Luke came up to me one morning because he had run out of milk and he was thirsty and he looked me in the eyes and he said, dear benevolent paternal provider, I beseech you in all of your glorious compassionate forbearance to provide me with a refill of milk for your glorious renown and your magnificent name. Amen. Well, once I picked my jaw up off the floor, I would tell Luke, Luke, (laughs) I love you. All you have to say is, dad, please give me some milk. I want to give you what you need in life. You don't have to impress me with big words. I already love you. I already want to give you what you need. So just ask. Well, so it is with our Heavenly Father. We don't need to use big words. We don't have to make it formal or complex or use big titles. Just talk to Him like you would talk to your dad. If if you want to pray well, then pray in a way that is informal, that is personal, that is intimate. And that is honest and that is respectful. Just how you would talk to a good dad. 
That's how you want to talk to your heavenly father. Now, this first point, it it forces us to clarify one thing. If you're going to pray to God as your heavenly father, it assumes that God is your heavenly father. And that's not actually true for everyone. Because human beings are not born as children of God. We're born separated from God by our sin. That's, that's where the gospel comes in. The gospel is the good news that even though we are sinners separated from God, God sent his own son Jesus to take all of our sin, die on the cross in our place, and then rise from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we could become part of the family of God through simple faith. And that's what we celebrated in baptism this morning. That's what each of these people did. They trusted in the gospel. They believed that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead to give them eternal life. And the moment that they believed that good news, God became their father and they became his children. That's how we enter into the family of God. So if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, you can become part of God's eternal family You can get to call God dad from now on if you'll simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be part of his family. For all of us who have trusted in Jesus, your God is your father. You can call him dad and that's all prayer is. You're speaking to God informally and personally as your heavenly father. So that's the first step in praying like Jesus. You keep it informal. Second step, very practical to praying like Jesus, you make it focused. You got to keep your prayers focused. And I mean a couple things when I use the word focused. You need to keep your prayer life focused. The first thing I, I mean by that word focus is that prayer needs to be a priority to you. For prayer to be effective, for your prayer life to be great, it has to be a priority in your life. If prayer is the 10th item on your list of priorities, it's never going to be great. It's never going to be powerful. It's never going to be effective. We need to look at Jesus' example. So how did Jesus rank prayer on his priority list? Well, we get help by looking at his actual prayer life. Here he is in the book of Mark, chapter 1. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now, I'll be honest, I don't like this verse. (laughs) This is not one of my life verses, because I don't like that part of the day when it is still dark. I'm not a morning person. And so the idea of waking up at 5 a.m. to go pray, that is hateful to me. I don't want to be up if the sun is not up yet. That's very painful. But Jesus did it. He got up early to pray. But But wait, maybe Jesus was just a morning person. Maybe he liked to wake up early and so that's when he happened to pray. Well, there's a problem with that theory and it's found in the book of Luke. Chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus is about to choose his 12 disciples. That's one of the most significant decisions he made in his earthly life. It was at this time that he went off to a mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. The whole night He spent the entire night in prayer because he knew, I have a big decision. I need to take this to the Father. I need to lay this out before him. So he didn't pray for five minutes about it. He prayed for hours the entire night. And so you add up those two verses and you find Jesus wasn't a morning person and Jesus wasn't a night person. He was just a person who prioritized prayer. 
Prayer was the most important thing to Jesus. Even though he's God, he could have been doing anything with his time. Prayer was the most important thing to him. It trumped everything else on his schedule. He made time early in the morning and late at night to pray because to Jesus, prayer was a privilege. It was his number one priority. And, and that actually should really shock us a little bit because I want you to think, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You, this is probably not a surprise to you that prayer was like really important to Jesus. But have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus needed prayer less than anyone else who's ever lived? Right? Because who's Jesus? Jesus is God. He's perfect. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He can do anything. He needed prayer infinitely less than any of us. And yet he put it first on his list. Now that isn't meant to guilt us into praying. The whole purpose of this is not guilt. Guilt is a very poor motivator. It's meant to inspire you. If Jesus, who needed prayer so much less than you put it first on his list. He gave up sleep for prayer. He gave up work for prayer. He gave up entertainment for prayer. He went off to pray. If he put it first on his list and he needed it less than us, then what an incredible privilege and power prayer must be for us who need it. Prayer must be an incredible privilege if Jesus, who didn't need it as much as we do, put it first. And so I I want us, as we look at the model of Jesus, don't feel guilt about that. Grab inspiration from that. Jesus is showing you with his own example how powerful prayer can be in your life if you will give it time, if you will make it a priority in your life. So the first thing that I mean by this word focused is that it's a priority. It's not the 10th item on your list. It's near the top. But the second thing that I mean about focused prayer is that when you do give time to prayer, you give it your undivided attention. I don't know if you noticed where Jesus went in these passages we read where he goes off to pray. Um, In the book of Mark, he goes off to a secluded place. In Luke, he goes up on a mountain alone to pray. Here in Luke chapter 5, the chapter before, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. A couple things to notice there. First of all, the word often. Often means habitual. This wasn't like a once a year kind of thing, like a prayer retreat for Jesus. This was, this is a couple times every week at least, maybe every day. We don't know how often, but it's often, it's a habit, it's his regular practice. Second word to notice there is wilderness. Let me clarify, wilderness is not like Yellowstone National Park. It's not going out in the desert. Wilderness just means you're not around a house. And in ancient Israel, it was really easy to get in the wilderness, You just walk 15 minutes any direction and you're in the wilderness. You're completely alone. You're undistracted. There were no sounds, no people to distract you. So Jesus' practice was to go out into the wilderness where he could focus on prayer. That was actually his favorite place to pray. We have lots of examples of Jesus praying publicly, but it's clear when you read through the Gospels, his favorite way to pray was to get alone. He would just walk 15 minutes some direction and get alone with his heavenly father to pray. Now, what does that mean for us? Um, Well, I can't walk 15 minutes anywhere and be in the wilderness. I'm surrounded by houses, but that's okay. I can still find a wilderness spot like Jesus where I can be undistracted and alone to pray. That might be your closet. 
That might be a spare bedroom. That might be in your car as you're driving somewhere. If you're a parent, that might be the shower. Because the shower is like the one place our kids won't come find us, at least hopefully. And so you can have at least a few minutes of peace to yourself to pray. So to learn from Jesus, this idea of undistracted prayer, what Jesus wants us to do is find our wilderness spot metaphorically, where your wilderness is. Maybe it's the back porch in the morning. Maybe it's, maybe it's some closet in the back of your bedroom. Wherever it is, find your wilderness spot and go there habitually. Go there often. So at least a few times a week, you are getting alone with God in your wilderness spot. And when you get to your wilderness spot, you protect it. You protect your wilderness, and the primary way that you're going to do that is you're going to swipe up from the bottom and choose airplane mode, right? Because we have a huge disadvantage when it comes to prayer, and that's that for most of us, we are enslaved to our devices. They're always in our pockets, ready to distract us at the worst possible times, They're ringing, they're dinging, they're vibrating with new updates. Look what somebody posted on Instagram. Look at the email waiting for you. Oh, this spammer is trying to get hold of you again. There's always all of these distractions. The wonderful thing is that all of them can be turned off. Just swipe up and hit the little airplane and you're done. Set it to the side. Protect your wilderness. Okay, so find your wilderness and then protect it. Go there at least two or three times a week. So that you can have focused time with the Lord in prayer. Okay, so when we think about this idea of focus, we mean that we're going to make prayer a priority on our schedules. And that when we pray, we're going to get alone to our wilderness spot where we can give undistracted, undivided attention to the Lord. Third practical step to praying like Jesus is to be bold. Pray for big things. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 21. All things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. That's a big promise, isn't it? It's like a huge blanket promise. Anything you ask for, if you believe that God hears you and answers your prayers, you will get it. Well, this is not the only time that Jesus makes a massive blanket promise. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus frequently says some radical things about praying boldly, praying and asking God for big things in your life, expecting that God will hear and answer your prayer. So look with me at Matthew chapter 7, and let's pick it up in verse 7. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake. Will he, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus ties the boldness we can have in prayer to the character of our Heavenly Father. 
When you pray, you can ask God for big things. You can boldly ask him for things. Why? Because he's a dad who loves to give you good things. And then Jesus makes this comparison to human fathers. And the point is, we human, sinful, fallen fathers typically like to give our kids good things. It's my kid's birthday this week, and, and I have actually been really looking forward to giving them the present that I, I bought them. So Julie and I, we, we pick out this present, we have it all ready to give them. It's sitting on the desk at home right now, which is hard for me, because I don't want it to sit there. Not because I want to open it, but because I want to give it to them, because I can't wait to watch them open it. That's like really thrilling. For me as a dad, to watch them open something I've purchased for them and to see the smile on their face and see them enjoy it, I enjoy that and I'm a sinful, awful person compared to God. If I enjoy giving my kids good things, how much more must God, a perfect father, love to give his kids good things? And so Jesus' point is ask God for big things. Boldly go into his presence, lay out your request before him and expect him to do big things in your life. And so, very practically speaking, if you are single and lonely, keep asking God to provide you a spouse. If you're married but haven't been able to have children, if you've been struggling with infertility, go to the Lord and ask boldly that God would give you kids. If you're unemployed and you've been trying to find a job, ask God to provide a great job for you. If you're sick and you haven't been able to get better, ask God, God, please make me better. Why? Because Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Now that promise, when Jesus says, ask and you will receive, it opens up a big can of worms, doesn't it? It puts before us the big question of the morning. Because for every one believer... Whom God heals of cancer, there's nine others whom he doesn't. Despite thousands of prayers offered in faith for them. And for every one infertile couple who is able to conceive a child, there's many others who are not. And for every lonely person who finds a spouse, there's others who do not. Despite praying their whole life for that. What do you do with that reality? What is going on when God doesn't seem to answer our prayers? So let me, let me put it to you as a simple question. Why doesn't God always give us what we ask for in prayer? That's our question. I'm going to give you four possible answers. Why doesn't God always give us what we ask for in prayer? According to the Bible, there's four possible reasons why God would say no. The first is because we're asking for something evil. In James chapter 4, verse 3, it says, You ask and do not receive. This is prayer. You ask God for something and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This one's pretty easy. God is not a universal vending machine. You don't put in your quarters and get whatever you want. God will not give you that which is evil, that which is sinful. He will only ever give you things that are good. And so if you're praying for something that you know God doesn't want, like for harm to come to someone or for you to get away with a sin, that's not going to be answered by God. He will never give you that which is evil because God is a righteous king. He's not a bending machine. Second reason, according to the Bible, why God may not give you what you've been praying for is because you're walking in sin. 
tells us in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever, ask, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. You notice that John takes the blanket promise of Jesus, asking you will receive, and he conditions it upon obedience. That promise is true only for those believers who are walking in obedience, who are obeying God's commands. Those are the only people who have any right to be confident that God will hear and answer their prayers. Now, John is not telling us we have to be perfect for God to answer our prayers. None of us will be perfect this side of heaven. What he's saying is that you must commit to walk with God in every way you can. You're trying to obey him in every area of life. And when you fail, you confess that sin, you turn away from that sin, and you return to follow Jesus. That's the ideal. If you're not doing that, if you're instead living with this area of known sin in your life and just saying, I want this, I'm going to have this, I don't care that it's wrong then you should not expect God to hear or answer your prayers. He won't. Disobedience extinguishes the power of prayer in your life. You must be seeking to walk with God in every area of life if you want God to hear and answer your prayers. It tells us in James 5, the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Not any man, but a righteous man. So now let's let's quickly let's jump back to our list of practical principles we're learning about how to pray. If you want to pray like Jesus, fourth very practical step, you must be living an obedient life. You must be walking in righteousness to the best of your ability through the power of the Holy Spirit if you want God to hear and answer your prayers. It's as simple as that. If you're living with sin, then you cannot expect that God will hear or answer your prayers. Okay, back now to our theology question. Why does God not always give us what we ask him in prayer? Third possible reason according to the Bible, because no leads to my greater good. Sometimes God gives us hard things in life because he knows that it's going to work out for a greater end. A greater purpose. Paul saw that in his own life. He experienced something that he metaphorically called a thorn in the flesh. We don't actually know what it was. Was it a sickness? Was it a disability? Was it demonic attack? We don't know what it was. But here's what Paul says about this thorn in the flesh. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. God had given him this thorn in the flesh to keep me from exalting myself. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So we don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. We just know Paul asked many times, God, please take it away. God said no, but it wasn't because it was an evil thing Paul was asking for. It's not evil to ask God to heal you or to drive away whatever this satanic messenger was. And we know it's not because Paul was walking in sin. No, Paul was incredibly obedient to God. The reason why God said no is because God knew that it was better for Paul to say no than to say yes. 
Because God, in, in his infinite wisdom, in his mysterious ways, he knew that what Paul needed at that time in his life, most of all, was spiritual strength, not physical healing. God looked at Paul. He saw Paul's past, present, and future. And he said, Paul, you don't realize this yet. What you think you need is actually not what you need. I know what you really need. And because I love you and because I'm your good, good father, I'm going to give you what you really need, even though it's not what you're asking for. Sometimes that's why God says no to our prayers. Because he knows better than we do what we truly need. And God in his infinite goodness and infinite wisdom will always give you what is best even when that's not what you want. In Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us this promise. It's a verse worth memorizing. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So that's why God sometimes doesn't heal you or doesn't provide a spouse or doesn't give you a child or doesn't provide a job. It's not because he likes seeing you miserable. Not at all. He's a good, good father. It's because he knows that saying no to this request will actually lead to a better life for you than if he would have said yes. That's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane As he's facing the cross, he turned to his heavenly father and prayed, God, please take away this cup of suffering that I'm about to experience. Yet, look at the end of that. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is praying in humility, in submission. And that's our fifth step to praying like Jesus. How do we pray well? Well, We pray out of a spirit of humility. When we're praying before God, we're acknowledging, God, this is what I want, and you want me. You've told me to tell you what I want. So I'm going to say it. Here it is, God. Here's what I want, yet not as I will, but as you will. Because, God, ultimately you know what's best. So when I pray to God, I, I do add that same statement that Jesus made in the garden at the end of my prayer. God, your will be done. So ultimately, God, you know best. You can see the future. I cannot. And so as much as I want this thing to change in my life, your will be done because you know best. So a great prayer life is one where your prayers rise out of a spirit of humility. You are submitting your will to God's will because you know he knows best. Okay, so back to our theology question. Why doesn't God always give us what we ask for, there's one last possible reason. Because we haven't yet persevered in asking. Turn to Luke chapter 18. and get a parable in Luke 18. So four reasons why God might say no to something you ask for. Because it's evil. Because you've been walking in sin. Because it's not actually what's best for you. Or because you just haven't asked him enough yet. Look at chapter 18 of Luke, starting in verse 1. Now he, that is Jesus, was telling them, that is the disciples, a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. 
There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? This at first is kind of a confusing parable because it's about a really bad guy. A judge who is unrighteous. Surely that's not God, right? No, it's not. That's actually the whole point of the parable. This isn't God. This is God's antonym. Complete opposite of God. This judge is unrighteous, uncaring, unloving. And yet this vulnerable woman brings a request to him over and over, day after day. And the logic goes something like this. If I was to say to you, well, LeBron James can hit a free throw. Well, that that doesn't mean much to you. But what if I said, well, Blake Jennings can hit a free throw? Well, if Blake Jennings, who's not good at basketball at all, if I can hit a free throw, then you know someone as good as LeBron James can easily hit a free throw. And that's the point. If an unrighteous judge, a horrible man like this, can be won over by persistence, then how much more God, who is righteous and loving and loves to give us what we ask for, how much more can he be won over by persistence in prayer? And the lesson is found right there in verse 1. Jesus is telling you, if you haven't gotten what you've asked for yet, maybe it's because God wants you to keep asking. Why? Well, because God loves perseverance. That's actually one of the things that honors God most. He loves it when his children persevere, when we endure in our asking. And so maybe God has said no because he's not yet ready to give you what you've asked for because you've not persevered yet. He wants to grow you in endurance. So keep going before him day after day, asking him to do this thing in your life that you are wanting him to do. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who works here, one of our pastors named Brad Evans. His dad was not a believer, and so Brad prayed for his dad's salvation every day for 30 years. 30 years. And then a year before his dad passed away, He trusted in Jesus. 30 years of asking for God. No, 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 no. Yes. Because sometimes we just need to persevere. So that's the fourth reason why God might have not yet said yes to what you've asked for. And it gives us our final step in praying like Jesus. We need to be persistent. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer was very short in words. Please deliver me from this cup, not my will, but your will be done. But we're told he prayed it for like hours, over, over, and over, and over, and over, and over again. Jesus was persistent in prayer, so should we. Okay, so six steps to praying like Jesus, all all very practical, simple steps that can give you a great prayer life. When you pray, keep it informal. Just talk to God as if he was a really good dad, because he is. Second, be focused in your prayers. Give it a a priority on your schedule and, and give it your undivided attention. Get away from distraction to pray. When you pray, be bold. Ask God to do big things in your life, trusting that he's a good dad who wants to give you good things. Fourth, walk in obedience. Live an obedient life, turning from sin. That's what God's looking for in the lives of those whose, whose prayers he answers. 
Fifth, walk in humility in your prayers. Submit to God, God, your will be done because you know best. And finally, number six, repeat yourself. Be persistent in your prayers as you ask God to do good things. Now, a few things to pray for. We've talked about how to pray. Let's talk about what to pray for. There's probably lots of things that you can think of to pray for. There's three things that God has been putting on my heart this week for us as a family to pray for. So I'm going to ask you to use these steps to pray for three things this week. The first, I can't escape this one every time I open Facebook or the news, the election is right in front of me. I want us to pray a little differently for the election. Um, I don't want us, well, you can on your own. I'm not asking for prayer for a particular candidate to win. I'm asking for prayer for the salvation of the candidates. Okay, so I I want us to step back for a second and not think so much about who's winning the election, but think about all the candidates as people whom God loves and who really need Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you to pray for the salvation of all the presidential candidates. That'll help us to be more generous in our tone and in our attitudes if we see them as human beings who need Jesus. So pray for the salvation of the presidential candidates. Second, I want you to pray that God will bring to Jesus thousands of Aggies this year. I was convicted of that because we went through Acts last year and it always, the idea of like thousands of Aggies coming to Christ seems ridiculous until you realize that on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 Jews were saved in about five minutes. Okay, 3,000 in five minutes. We have a whole year. God can save a lot of Aggies in that time frame. So I want to invite you to pray that God will grab hold of and save thousands of Aggies this year. And then the third thing that I want you to pray for is a repetition of last week. I want you to pray for our missionaries. Especially, I want to ask you to pray. We have a number of missionaries who are about to leave to head over to Muslim countries to share the faith. It's going to be incredibly dangerous for them. I want you to pray for them. Now, their primary prayer request is not safety, it's faithfulness. That they would be faithful no matter what suffering comes. So I want you to pray for the faithfulness of our missionaries, especially those headed to the Muslim world. Now, to to help you pray, to help kind of frame that prayer for you, we have a young lady here at Southwood whose name I'm not going to use for security's sake. Um, She's getting ready to head over to a, a Muslim country for many years to come to share her faith. And I asked if she was willing to share with you a few prayer requests. She said yes. And so she recorded the video I'm about to show you. This video won't be posted online. It'll actually be deleted from everywhere after this service this morning. And I'm going to ask you not to share any of what you're about to hear with anyone. Her life is actually on the line where she's headed. So we want to keep her as safe as possible. So we're not going to use her name and we're going to ask you not to share the country or people group that her team is about to go to. But here, this will help you to pray accurately for her. I'll show you that video so you can pray for her, but also so that you can just face the reality that we have men and women here at Southwood whose lives will be at stake in the next few years as they head overseas to share the gospel. Please pray for her and her team uh, on a regular basis, not just for one day. They're doing language training for a few months, and then they're headed to where she said they're headed. Again, please don't share that information with anyone. All right, I'm going to close us in prayer. Uh, I'm going to pray for these things, but then I'm going to challenge you this week to please set aside time, get into the wilderness with God, be undistracted, and pray for the salvation of our presidential candidates, 
the salvation of thousands of Aggies this year and for the faithfulness of grace missionaries, especially those headed to Muslim countries. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you have invited us and allowed us to call you Father. Thank you that we can talk to you like our dad. Thank you that you love us and that you love to do good things in our lives. And so God, we bring you these requests. We thank you that you already know them. None of them are too big for you or too much for you. You can accomplish all of these things. And so we plead with you for the salvation of the presidential candidates in this current election cycle, Lord. We know that above all else, they are human beings created in the image of God whom you love and whom your son Jesus died for. And so we pray for each of them that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior, that they would find hope and forgiveness in him, and that as a result, they would live lives that please you. Second, Lord, we come before you on behalf of our campus. We pray for the tens of thousands, 60-something thousand students who are here in this town attending Blinn or A&M. We pray, God, that you would do something amazing this year. We know it is not too big for you to save thousands of them, and so we pray that you would. We pray that you would use all of us to be faithful witnesses to them, that we would be ready to share the gospel with the students in this town and to share with them the love of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would begin a movement that is powerful, that tens of thousands of Aggies would follow you, that they would be more excited about Jesus than about Aggie football, that they would come to know the hope and eternal life that's found in your son. And third, Father, we pray for the missionaries of this church who are sharing Jesus with people all over the world. And particularly we pray for these men and women who are headed to Muslim countries. This woman in particular, Lord, as she gets ready to head to an incredibly dangerous place. We pray, God, not for their safety, but for their faithfulness. Though we certainly do hope that you'll keep them safe. We pray above all else that you would help them to share Jesus effectively. We pray that your spirit would go before them, that you would be already at work in the hearts and the minds of the people to whom they will serve. We pray that you would invite those Muslims to read your word, that they would have dreams and visions about Jesus, that they would be receptive to the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would begin a movement in the Muslim world of hundreds and thousands of churches being planted as countless Muslim men and women, boys and girls, come to know Jesus as their Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would draw them to the hope and the forgiveness that they can find in Jesus alone. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn to you in prayer throughout this week, that we would each give it the time, the priority, and the undivided attention that it deserves. You're so good, Dad. We love you. We thank you that you listen to us and that you care about us and that you grant us our requests. We pray all this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week as we jump back into 2 Timothy.